You're listening to The Living Word with Danny Hodges of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Pete. The accusation, he's casting out demons by Beelzebub. That's illogical, that's ludicrous, that's irrational. But when somebody wants to resist the truth and they're determined they're gonna resist the truth, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter the argument you present. It doesn't matter how logical and rational because now, now their decision to not do the right thing based on truth has nothing to do with the rationality of the argument. What it has to do is with will. In today's message, Pastor Danny will remind you that the truth of God is highly logical. Scientifically and historically, the Bible and its truths are verifiable. So why is it that some people just don't want to hear about the Word of God? And why do some claim it to be false or illogical? It comes down to the fact that some people simply just don't want to believe. For some reason or another, whether it be simple defiance or a bad experience, some people don't want to admit that there is a God and that He has standards. Now here's Pastor Danny in the book of Mark chapter 3 as he begins his message, The Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Mark's Gospel, chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. That's a crowd. You can't even get the Big Mac up to your mouth. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, who came down from Jerusalem, said, He's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. A parable is meant to make plain what is being communicated. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided... He cannot stand. His end has come. And here's the parable part. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. Well, even a kid can understand that. Dad, you think you can take him? I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Jesus is making such a commotion that even those humanly closest to him, Mary, the rest of his family members, they think he's flipped. And they are going to come 
and the Greek word is a strong one, they're going to seize him. Literally, they're going to come and get him and say, boy, you come home? You coming with us? And they don't understand what's happening. Boy, will they be surprised when they show up what he has to say. It's not the message, but let me just say, there may be times if you are worth your salt for the kingdom of God, people will think you're nuts. Your own family members will think you've lost it. Paul the apostle, when he stood before Governor Festus, and Festus listened until Paul discoursed on the resurrection, claiming that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and Festus interrupted Paul and said, Paul, your great learning is driving you mad. You're insane. And Paul said, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. The things I'm saying are reasonable, and you can check it out the truthfulness of what I'm saying. Now, having his family think he's crazy is one thing, but having the religious leaders of the day accuse him of casting out demons by Beelzebub, Beelzebub, Beelzebub means Lord of the flies. He was originally used for a Philistine god, but it goes way back, at least the root, the root of Beelzebub. We spell it most of the time B-A-A-L. Baal or Baal or Baal, depending on how you pronounce it. And that's a false god that goes way back into history. Casting out demons by Lord of the Flies, Beelzebub. Jesus' answer is what I call, and I put in my notes, it's what I call classic Jesus. Because every time he spoke, he spoke with this wisdom from heaven. I wish every time I spoke, I could do that. So much so that by the time you get to the end of his earthly ministry, we have recorded in Matthew twenty-two forty-six. 46. Let me just read it for you. Uh, no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. The answer to the accusation, he puts a parable there. And the parable is meant to make clear what he's trying to say in regard to the accusation. And what he's saying is, it just makes no sense. (laughs) Satan is not foolish enough to oppose himself. You think Satan is glad when Jesus says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven? You think Satan is, is excited when Jesus, after that, to prove that he has authority to forgive this guy his sins, says, okay, take up your mat, go home. And the guy takes up his mat and he goes home. You think Satan is uh, happy about what Jesus is doing and what he's saying? No, hell is alerted. It's hell that's inspiring these religious leaders to accuse him of casting out demons by Beelzebub. And if hell would have stopped and just thought a minute, you go, wait wait a minute, that's maybe not a good strategy. Because even a child can understand if you're going to rob somebody, you want to make sure you can take them first. And here's the bottom line. The accusation that he's casting out demons by Beelzebub is illogical. You really stop thinking about it, it just doesn't make any sense. It's like saying you're going to go rob somebody and the guy's bigger and stronger and and he's going to say, what else would you like? It's ludicrous to think that. No, he's going to beat you up, he's going to kick you out of his house and he's going to keep his possessions. So Jesus must be stronger than Satan, 
because he's absolutely opposing Satan and taking his possessions and setting people free and forgiving them, etc., etc., etc. So the, the accusation is absolutely illogical. Part of my devotional reading this past Friday was um, Psalm 14. And I think it's interesting. Uh, in light of what I'm studying, especially because it was just my regular devotional reading. And when I hit the Psalm uh, 14, uh, it opens like this. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. In other words, that's really illogical to say there's no God. That's not rational thinking. It's foolish thinking to say there is no God. You're going to look around at the world and the creation and, and, and go, oh, there's no God. It just happened. It's illogical. To believe in evolution is illogical. But going back to the saying there's no God, did you know that God doesn't believe in atheists? He doesn't. Now, let me pause on this point, and I think it's a good pause. In 1916, Albert Einstein didn't like where his calculations were leading him. Because at the time, he believed in a pantheistic God. That is a God... Uh, that he believes is one with the universe. You know, they're kind of together. They're one and the same. He's, a, he's part of the universe. But if, but if his theory that he's working on now is true, then the God he believes in is not the right one. What's the theory he's working on? It is called general relativity. General relativity. General relativity, if it's true, would mean that the universe is not uh, static, but it had a beginning. Had a beginning. <laughs> Here's some, listen, Einstein later called his general relativity theory irritating because it flew in the face of what he believed about God. And so Einstein produced in this theory of general relativity, what's called a fudge factor. Trying to say, well, maybe it's not true. A fudge factor. But three years later in 1919, British cosmologist Arthur Eddington conducted an experiment during a solar eclipse, which confirmed that general relativity was indeed true. Eddington, get this, like Einstein, was not happy with his discovery. And here's what Eddington wrote. Philosophically, the notion of a beginning of, of the present order of nature is repugnant to me. I should like to find a genuine loophole. But he never did. Because in 1922, just a short time later, Russian mathematician Alexander Friedman officially exposed Einstein's fudge factor as an algebraic error. Welcome to class. Are you interested in it a little more? Listen, meanwhile, Dutch astronomer Willem de Sitter found that general relativity required the universe to be expanding. So five years later, 1927, the expanding of the universe was actually observed by astronomer Edwin Hubble. Hubble, looking through the 100-inch telescope at California's Mount Wilson Observatory, discovered a, quote, red shift, unquote, in the light from every observable galaxy. 
which meant that those galaxies were moving away from us. They're expanding. Two years later, 1929, Einstein made a pilgrimage to Mount Wilson Observatory, California, and looked through Hubble's telescope, and he saw for himself evidence that was, he says, irrefutable. Now, you're going to leave church today smarter than when you came in. General relativity supports one of the oldest formal arguments for the existence of a theistic God. What's a theistic God? A theistic God is one who is creator and ruler of the universe. That's a theistic God. And general relativity supports what's called the cosmological argument. And what is that? Three parts. Everything that had a beginning had a cause. Second, the universe had a beginning. And third, therefore, the universe had a cause. Now, hang with me. I know this is, you know, stuff that you don't want to study for a test for. I understand that. Uh, but that last point in the cosmological argument, that's called the law of causality. And so the cosmological argument supports the law of causality. You say, what is the law of causality? Well, let me just give you this. The law of causality is the basic principle of science. If you don't have the law of causality, you don't have science. Someone wrote, to deny the law of causality is to deny rationality. The very process of rational thinking requires us to put together thoughts, that's the causes, that result in conclusions, that's the effects. So if somebody ever says to you, I don't really believe in the law of causality, here's what you say. Well, what made you come to that conclusion? And you got them. Let me give you one more. One more. It's called the teleological argument. Tele, telos, means design. Here's the teleological argument. And it has three parts. It goes like this. Every design had a designer. The universe has highly complex design. Therefore, the universe had a designer. English physicist, you'll recognize this name, and mathematician Isaac Newton confirmed the validity of the teleological argument when he marveled at the design of the solar system. And here's what Isaac Newton wrote. The most beautiful system of the sun, planets, comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of a powerful being. Scientists continue to discover and confirm that the universe we live in is like a diamond-studded Rolex, except that the universe is even more precisely designed than the Rolex. Watch. The universe is so specifically tweaked to allow us and other living things to live on this planet in the middle of a very hostile environment. The scientists call the things that allow us to live here and survive, here's what they call them, anthropic constants. Anthropic comes from a Greek word that just means man or human. Now, 
There's a lot of anthropic constants. A lot. Now, there is a point in all this. When the first astronauts passed over the surface of the moon years ago and saw the earth rise, something that no human being before then had seen, they read from the book of Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John Glenn, the first American astronaut to orbit the earth back in 1962, years later as a 77-year-old man, looking out from the space shuttle discovery, remarked, and I quote from John Glenn, to look out at this kind of creation and not believe in God is to me impossible. But here's the point. Frederick Friedrich is the way you say it. Friedrich Nietzsche, renowned atheist. Here's what he said. I want you to look carefully at what Friedrich, Friedrich Nietzsche said. If one were to prove this God of the Christians to us, we should be even less able to believe in him. It is our preference that decides against Christianity, not arguments. Let me read that again. If one were to prove this God of the Christians to us, we should be even less able to believe in him. It is our preference that decides against Christianity, not arguments. That's what's happening in the text. The accusation, he's casting out demons by Beelzebub. That's illogical. That's ludicrous. That's irrational. But when somebody wants to resist the truth and they're determined they're going to resist the truth, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter the argument you present. It doesn't matter how logical and rational because now, now their decision to not do the right thing based on truth has nothing to do where the rationality of the argument, what it has to do is with the will. Now it's volitional. Let me say it another way. Now it's an issue of the heart. And that's the problem with these religious leaders. And so their accusation is illogical, but it's not just illogical. It goes further than that. It's blasphemy. And that's why Jesus says, I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin. And still today we have debate over this thing we call the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I've had people ask me as a pastor over the years, I think, have I committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Am I, am I, is there any hope for me? And they have all kind of different ideas on what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Now let me read you what I put in my notes, just so I make it clear. This is my opinion. I want to make that clear. It's my opinion. People still question and debate exactly what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. I think sometimes in attempting to go too deep on a matter, we may lose the simple understanding of the issue. The issue here is the clear evidence that what Jesus is doing is not only in opposition to Satan, but it is by the power of God. The New Testament tells us that the works Jesus did and the miracles he performed testify to the truth of who he is. But instead of acknowledging the truth evidenced by Jesus' works and, of course, making the right decision based on the acknowledgement, these religious leaders absurdly accuse him of casting out demons by Beelzebub, and in doing so, they commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, some people might go, well, I've never accused Jesus of casting out demons by Beelzebub, so am I in the clear? 
We also call the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit the unpardonable sin because Jesus said never be forgiven in this world or in the one to come. It's eternal. My understanding of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, very simply, it's not responding correctly to the witness of the Holy Spirit as to who Jesus is and based on who he is, make a right decision regarding that truth. Now, I want to show you a couple of things that to me back up what I just said. Luke chapter 16 and verse 31. I'm just going to read the one verse, but I need to give you the context of the verse. And the context is Jesus tells a story of a rich man and a beggar named Lazarus. We, ha- we are not told the name of the rich man, but the rich man dies. He wakes up in Sheol, and he wakes up in what we call hell. And he's tormented in fire, in flames. Lazarus, the beggar, dies. He also ends up in Sheol, but a different part of Sheol. Both are down, down, somewhere in the heart of the earth. One is called hell, and there's flames, and there's fire, and there's torment. The other is called Abraham's bosom. That's where Lazarus the beggar ended up. Abraham's bosom because he died in the fate of Abraham. What faith is that? Through your seed, singular word, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's a prophecy about the coming Messiah. It's a prophecy about Jesus. And all who died prior to the cross went to the grave after physical death, but they went to a place called Abraham's bosom. That's what Jesus tells us in Luke 16. And other verses confirm it. You couldn't go to heaven because the sacrifice sufficient for your sin wasn't made. But you did go to a place because based on your faith now, you're not going to burn. You're a place of comfort. And you're awaiting the fulfillment of the prophecies and regarding the Messiah. And once fulfilled, Psalm 68 came true. It says he led captives in his train. And he went, Peter said, to Sheol. And he emptied Abraham's bosom. And now to be absent from the body, be present with the Lord. But the point of the story, rich man in hell, but he can see across to Abraham's bosom. He says to Abraham, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to dip his finger in water because I'm tormented in these flames. Abraham says, son, you made your decision in your life. Basically, he made his. He made the right one. You made the wrong one. Your destiny is sealed. I can't come there. He can't come there. You can't come here. No, not possible. Well, then, Father Abraham, I have brothers. I have five brothers. Send someone to warn them. Send someone from the dead. And here's what the answer was. Verse 31 of Luke 16. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. You take that and you link it up with 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Let me just tell you what that is. That is where the scripture tells us that every scripture in this Bible is from the Holy Spirit. That God, using human agents, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gave us this book. And this book, what Jesus is saying in Luke 16 is, if you won't respond to the truth of this book, you won't respond even if someone rises from the dead. And by the way, someone has risen from the dead. 
Thanks for joining Pastor Danny today as he walks us through the book of Mark. This New Testament gospel book conveys a fast-paced progression of events that occurred during Jesus' ministry. It's almost as if the writer intended to communicate that Jesus was continually forward-thinking toward the cross and his mission and purpose here on earth. In Mark 10.45, it says, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the ultimate summary of the book of Mark. Jesus came humbly as a servant to reach the lost. Are you feeling lost today? Or have you been found and are following Jesus fully now? No matter what your answer is, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is info at ccfstpete.church. Let us know how you heard about the living word and how we can be praying for you. That address again is info at ccfstpete.church. If you're in the St. Petersburg area, come join us and hear from Pastor Danny at Calvary Chapel Fellowship. We're holding services each Saturday at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. You'll find all the information you need on our website, ccfstpete.church. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope that you'll join us again for our next edition, right here on The Living Word.